Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Mastering Dungeons. Thanks for checking in with us for another week. And thank you, Teos, for coming on to speak with me. I know each week is gets more and more difficult to put up with me, but you are hanging in there. Uh, I, I like that as a humor point, but the reality is that, I mean, I think I tweeted about it two days ago. I was like, why is it not Monday? Like, come on, like, why can't we just record every day? And I seriously have some days been like, I mean, what if we did record another episode? <laughs> so so this, this is fun time. I love this. Yeah. Well, you know, we could be flexible. We could be flexible. If you're Jones in the record, just let, let me know and we'll, we'll move it up a day or so. And then one day when the lost episodes are found. That's right. Well, part of the reason I know that I wanted to record earlier this week was that there was so much news happening and it just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. So with that, we are going to get into a very heavy news segment uh, for this week. The first being the new book was announced. It, it is was called... just as we predicted, right? We right. said it was going to be Dragon Jammer uh, Feywild. And right. it, it wasn't. It wasn't. And it wasn't. It was, of all things, a book called Candlekeep Mysteries. This will go on sale March 16th, and it's already available for pre-order on places like the Indie Beyond, Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, etc. Uh, it is an anthology of 17 mystery-themed adventures covering levels 1 to 16. Um, each adventure begins with the discovery of a book, and each book is the key to a door leading to adventure. So you can use them to run either short one-shot games or you can plug it into a larger campaign. Um, so, Teos, what do you feel about this? Or what, what, are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is cool. I mean, you and I have had the pleasure of working on Candlekeep. We did it during yes, the D&D Next Days. We created a convention adventure all around Candlekeep. And it is a cool location. Yeah. Um, I like this premise of sort of a book, right? Because that leans into what the place is. I'm mm -hmm. excited to see what all these different creators did. And the creators, I mean, it's a huge, diverse group um, that seems to be like you must have a Twitter account to be on this list right. um, or streaming or something like that. I mean, that's not 100% true. I think there may be a person that doesn't have a Twitter account, but. But there are, um, it is just, I mean, Graham Barber, Kelly Lynn D'Angelo, Allison Huang, Mark Humes, Jennifer Kretschmer, Daniel Kwan, Adam Lee, Ari Levitch, Sarah Madsen, Christopher Perkins, oh, that guy's new, uh, yeah. <laughs> Michael Polkenhorn, Tamor Remen, who now works at D&D, Derek Ruiz, Kenna Shaw, Brand Stoddard, uh, very cool to see his name there, uh, Amy mm -hmm. Vorpal, uh, and Tony Winslow Brill, we know her. Yep. Um, you know, really neat. I mean, what a, I mean, just a ton of people, right? Just yeah. Yeah. And, and what you get then from this book is not just 17 uh, different mini adventures, but you get 17 pretty diverse adventures. So among them, there's probably something that is going to tickle your fancy or the fancy of your players if you're the DM. And, yeah. you know, it, it is an interesting location, first of all. Um, it's one of those locations that's sort of always been around in the Forgotten Realms lore. And thanks to the video game, um, well, what was the, yeah, Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate. Yeah. Right. That's where it starts. So it is, it holds a place in many people's fondness for the Forgotten Realms. But you don't see a lot of adventure there. And when we were working on our project, we basically came to the realization that it, it was essentially unmappable. Yeah, because and, and nothing really exists. There, there, there were things that happened there, and there were books that described it, 
but very few details, which was interesting. Right, right. So uh, it will be interesting to see how they handle the the actual place itself. Um, they are going to include a poster map of the library fortress, uh, but there are levels beneath. You know, there are different areas that are probably supernatural or multiplanar. So it, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how that goes. I also um, can't help but think of when we did our project, we were fortunate enough to talk to Ed Greenwood a bit. Uh, Greg yep. Bilson, the, the, the then uh, product man, project manager, he brought Ed in. And when we talked to Ed, Ed talked about, well, you know, this is one of these places that has been touched by a lot of designers and they've just done their thing kind of quote unquote without he didn't say this but like without checking with him right right yeah. <laughs> and and so they had said things like you know it's a forest of countless towers for example and he's like how would you have sages that didn't actually know how many towers yeah. there are and so there were some neat pieces there and so i'm curious what will these new writers add to the lore of Candlekeep, and, and sure. how will it transmute further yeah it, it's fun to see that uh that transition in a shared world uh, yeah. over time based on the people that work on it and the the game itself how that makes uh, forces changes within the design and development of of material and you wanted to make a note about uh, Derek Ruiz yes yeah so he's known on Twitter as Elvin Tower and he works what he does regularly that you see him doing is he he creates maps mm -hmm. and he he creates a lot of the maps for Sly Flourish for Mike Shea's uh, books he creates map packages where there's a map and an adventure and it's neat to see it because there are very few Latinos who have worked on D&D, despite mm -hmm. the fact that, I mean, I grew up playing in Colombia and there are people all over Latin America that play, but you see very few designers. And so seeing Derek Rees or Elvin Tower on there, that was a lot of fun for me to see that. Yep. So it will be interesting again to, to see what the final product looks like, and we will know uh, in March. Cool. Next big news, D&D movie. Puh, who needs a D&D movie? There is now a D&D TV show in development. According to various sources, Derek Kolstad, the creator and writer behind the John Wick franchise, some of you may have heard of that, has been tapped to pen and develop a pitch for a live-action series based on the Dungeons & Dragons universe. Kolstad uh, is also the writer in the upcoming Marvel TV series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Not bad. So, so if I have a choice between a D&D movie and a D&D series TV show, give me the TV show. Sure. 99 times out of 100. So that this is very exciting for me. Uh, and I don't yeah. have much else to say except, you know, lots of shows go into maybe development, but until they're, you know, filming, until they're, until there's on the schedule, I, I never hold my breath too much. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, we, we, we had not heard the TV show is relatively new news. We heard it was sort of mentioned in the Hasbro earnings report, uh, a, you know, like a month ago or something we reported on this. Um, but now we see that they're they're moving with some speed. And this E1 group, which is the Hasbro entertainment arm, um, mm -hmm. is doing both the movie and this TV show. And it, it feels like they are they're getting going right. Like it's post. Right. Um, they've figured out how to work with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and so now they're, they're, they know how to do isolation, how to film, how to get everybody together and shoot these movies safely and, and TV shows. And so now it, it feels like this engine is there. They said that this would be uh, out next year. So we'll see. I don't know that will really happen, but it, it, it at least, you know, it's not, I don't think it's going to be five years from now. I think it's soon. 
soonish. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's beyond just the rumor stage at this point with, oh, so and so has talked about possibly, you know, this right. is this, they are in pre production. They are, they are working toward uh, an end, which is uh, refreshing and reassuring to me. Yep. And it's also neat to see all of these places, you know, Hollywood Report or any of these big sort of media coverings, places all talking about D&D, which can yeah. only do us good, right, for the whole exactly. RPG community. Yep. And uh, speaking of large scale media talking about D&D, the L.A. Times has a story where they interviewed Liz Shu, who's the head of publishing and licensing for D&D, saying that revenue was up 35% in 2020 compared to 2019. That's the seventh consecutive year of growth. Um, 35%, when you think of it, you know, just as a random number, doesn't seem like a lot. But when you consider seven uh, years of consecutive growth, yeah. if you, if you, if you, maintain your profit as a company or maintain your revenue as a company that's often a good thing so to be up 35 percent is is huge and and profit wise one suspects their profit has not changed substantially mm -hmm. um and so it probably really is close to whatever profit uh increases because it's not like they're hiring a billion people they're hiring a few more people you know, they're, they aren't making vastly more books, right? They're just printing right. more copies of them. So yep. um, this looks really good. The other really yeah. interesting tidbit here is, you know, you wonder is where these numbers come from. But Shu says that in 2020, virtual play rose 86%. And that's not clear yeah. if she means just D&D or, you know, is that like a number pulled from YouTube and Twitch? But it's still mm -hmm. either way, like virtual play up 86% with the yeah. pandemic. I certainly believe it. Right, but still, eighty-six percent is almost double. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that's uh, really amazing. Uh, moving on from the business side to the new uh, offering side, a new monthly magazine from MCDM is out, and it is called Arcadia. You want to? Yeah. Give us the scoop on that, Deus. Yeah, we had talked about this back when it was kind of a twinkle in their eye. I think Matt Colville said something like, you know, we want to make something that doesn't suck. And he had his typical, you know, down to earth way of talking about it. He hired managing editor James Intercasso, friend of the show. Mm -hmm. um, we bow before James. And James has been working with a team of both freelancers and their own inside amazing team at MCDM to create a magazine and it feels a lot like a combination of the old dungeon and dragon magazine mm -hmm. um, they their target is to have three articles uh, each month though this one has four and one of the upcoming months will also have four um, and they run the gamut from adventures to uh, it can be subclasses really exciting stuff really well made beautiful the art is great the layout is great looks fantastic um, and you get it for just $5 or $10, either level that's on the MCDM Patreon, mm -hmm. which is how Matt Colville sort of was like, you know, we need to do something for our Patreon subscribers. What do we do? And this is what they came up with. And if it works, we'll keep doing it. Um, and if you don't want to do the Patreon, you can just buy individual issues for $7 on the MCDM store. Uh, mm -hmm. And they probably will bundle them at some point, I think they said. And what I, what I love about this, they're going to do, I think, three issues i think they're doing like a quarter's worth and then they're going to pause and look at this and what they like about the patreon model is they can be collating all the feedback 
from everybody to then come up with how to refine it. And I just, I love the intelligence of how MCDM operates. Mm -hmm. uh, plus they pay people well, they pay freelancers well. Yep. Um, it's great. And yeah, do you want to talk about what's in this issue? Yeah, so in this issue uh, of the four articles, these are how they break down. Um, one is called the Workshop Watches from Leon Barillo. And it is a short adventure for fifth level PCs that feature a sentient magician's workshop. Love, love that right off the bat. Um, you want some rules? We have new sorcerer subclasses from Gabe Hicks in the article called Titan Heart. Um, they have the blood of Titans in their veins and it includes a sample NPC and a retainer. So good stuff there. Uh, mm -hmm. You want a little bit of sort of the rules uh, aspect of the game. We'll talk about Jumping on Mounted Combat by Willie Abiel. Um, new rules for taming monsters and then riding them. So there is a yeah. mount version for six existing creatures. And finally, I don't know how to pronounce this, so I'm going to do my best. Book of Yell, The Recreant by Sadie Lowry, where you get two high CR celestial fallen angel enemies to use in your game. So you've got something for players, something for DMs and adventure, some new rules to, to work with. Uh, you know, a great first offering, a way, a great way to come out of the gate and and put down your stake as, OK, we're going to be the ones that that take up the mantle of a monthly D&D magazine. I love it. Um, I also think it's really smart because it's a way that, um, you know, James knows people in the industry, but this is a way that MCDM can also be working with freelance talent and sort of qualify them for bigger projects because, mm -hmm. you know, they want to be creating a lot of bigger things like their kingdom and warfare type uh, books. So this is a great way to just stay connected and build an army of freelancers that's loyal to them. Um, I've freelanced for them. I love working with MCDM. They're a great outfit. Um, this is a great magazine. I, I've, I've read, I've looked through all of it, and then I've mm -hmm. closely read uh, the Workshop Watches, that adventure. It's a mm -hmm. super fun adventure, just top notch, like the kind you just want to pull out and run at a convention, right? A go-to excellent short adventure, really fun. Yeah, well, I mean, James has his finger on the pulse of not just the industry, but of good development, good design. Yeah. So you know that right coming out of the gate that they're going to have sort of the best of the best right up front. And uh, I think that that shows in, in all of these uh, articles that, that yeah. are there. So let's go from Arcadia to Wizards of the Coast itself. Uh, Wizards of the Coast hired Mackenzie DeArmas as the new associate game designer. So again, more more jobs, more freelancers yeah. becoming uh, full-time employees. And, and this is exciting. Uh, do you want to talk for just a second about that? Cause you had some good thoughts. Yeah, She's, she's highly regarded um, in our field. And what I love is this is, you know, Mackenzie started playing in 2018. That's when she first mm -hmm. played D and D. Um, and it just shows the meteoric rise that is possible for someone. If you do good, hard work, and if you're a good person and, and people appreciate working with you, and it also shows how playing for you know decades isn't necessarily an edge in the mm -hmm. industry. Uh, certainly not the way it once was, if it even is at all. Um, mm -hmm. She's known for working on the islands of Sina Una, which is based on Philippine mythology. She uh, co-designed Kingdoms and Warfare with MCDM, written D&D Beyond articles, DM's Guild work, Wizards of the Coast freelancing, 
and then a bunch of like uh, online conventions and and, conven and physical convention panel organization mm -hmm. um, and, and other activities like that. So just someone who's just been pouring herself into this and now she's associate game designer. A, a great choice. Really cool yeah. to see. Yeah. I mean, experience can be great, but it can also be a stumbling block depending on if you're clinging to things that are useful or helpful in in the game now. So, uh, you know, I, I love to see, well, let's talk about the next bit of news, which shows that sometimes experience does pass, does. That's true. Uh, which is the Cobalt Press hiring a new editorial director, Thomas M. Reed. Uh, so Thomas worked for TSR. He worked for Watsi. He worked for video game companies. And so now he has been hired as the new editorial director, the old editorial director uh, went to work for Wizards. That's right. So, so, you know, moving on up. And I'm looking forward to think what's coming from Cobalt Press because they have announced not just the, their new editorial director, but also a, an alliance with a, a, an upcoming virtual tabletop called Shard Tabletop, which will be kickstarting in about a week or so. And so they're going to have their open gaming license and Cobalt Press content on that platform, everything from Monsters to Adventures. Yeah, and Mike Shea also tweeted uh, on Sunday that his content, uh, Lazy DM, uh, or Fantastic Adventures, will be coming to Shard Tabletop as well. So that'll be interesting to, to watch not only Cobalt Press's involvement, uh, but how this new virtual tabletop does. Mm -hmm. And it's great to have that competition within, within the industry. Absolutely. So now it's not just, you know, Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds. Now it's let's bring another group in. Let's see what they can do. And hopefully all uh, ships will rise with this rising tide. Yeah. And you have to always wonder, I mean, D&D Beyond has seemed to indicate that they're going to do something with virtual tabletops. And then D&D has had those very interesting survey questions about mm -hmm. playing online that makes you wonder whether yeah. the Wizards is going to do something or partner with someone. That's super interesting. Right. So. I mean, the virtual tabletop that they were planning for fourth edition <laughs> looked great. Right? It did for, look great. Yeah, uh, until you actually had to make it. I so, mean, I played uh, two games on it once they, it was so strange how they eventually released it, but with such limited support, and then they just shelved it after a while. It was really bizarre, yeah. but yeah. yeah well. So sticking with Cobalt Press, but sort of changing gears into organized play, uh, Cobalt Press has announced interpolation. Is that how you pronounce that? Interpolation. Yeah. All right. Now the I'm trying to think. Yes, the first of six adventures in the Midgard Chronicles Living Campaign. So they are partnering with a group called Warduke Press to create a uh, Midgard Chronicles Living Campaign. So we've seen Living Campaigns sort of try to bust through and become this, you know, as robust as something like um, the Adventures League or for Pathfinder, the Pathfinder um, Chronicles sort of uh, yeah. living campaign. Now, Warduke Press, I believe, were the ones that were behind the successor to Living Greyhawk called Greyhawk Reborn. And so they they did make some inroads, but they were yeah. more local, uh, you know, local areas where you could uh, go to conventions and play their stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how they... Uh, work with Cobalt Press and, and what they can come up with. Yeah, very interesting. Um, they certainly understand 
organized play given that they've worked on this Greyhawk Reborn campaign. Um, but that has to be limited because of the IP and how they can mm -hmm. do it. Um, right. So it'll be cool to see how they take all of that learning they've had of having done that for years and, and work on this. It's very cool. I don't think, you know, um, for it to, to be successful for a company, an organized play program does not need to be Adventures League. I mean, it almost can't right. be. Um, sure. It just needs to be a rallying point for players and GMs to come together and mm -hmm. to create a sense of story and help uh, your, the audience focus in on the intellectual property that, that takes place you know, mm -hmm. in your game. And if right. it does that, it's a massive success and it can even go away after a while. But having existed creates just a group of kind of allied, united people who, who mm -hmm. are understand and, and enjoy the game. And that's, that's exactly what we want. Yeah. So lots, lots happening at Cobalt Press. And we have another hire in for a full-time uh, game design job, and that is Celeste Conowich, who was hired at 2C Gaming. Uh, you know, Celeste has been a streamer, a uh, freelancer, freelance designer, and she's, I, I know from experience, because I've worked with her on a few projects, very, very, very busy with, with in, that, in that role as a full-time game designer. And now she gets to take that expertise to 2C Gaming. Uh, 2C Gaming has had 15 Kickstarters up to this point. So there's definitely some work to be done uh, with them. And so, you know, good luck, Celeste. We're very happy for you and yeah. hope everything goes well for you and with 2C. And she had announced that she was working on the current Kickstarter they have, this Tome of Titans. Uh, so it's interesting to see that now, yeah, full time. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And another de uh, designer, freelancer, has left a job, but we don't know where he's going. And that's James Hake. So James worked uh, as the content provider, main content provider, content manager for D&D Beyond. So all the great articles that you would read on D&D Beyond, he either wrote them or helped them uh, come to fruition. And he announced on D&D Beyond that he would be leaving for other projects he did not say what those projects were, but with the way that the industry is going, I would assume that it is for something in the realm of a full-time job. Well, you'd be surprised. Actually, I just talked to James this morning and uh, it's just farming. He's going to be a farmer. Really? That's, yeah. hey, yeah, we certainly, just, he doesn't live in Portland, right? I mean, that would. <laughs> no, no, actually, okay. yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure he'll do a little animal husbandry. You know, he's the kind of right. guy who likes more than one project at once. So I can see chickens sure. in his future. Okay. Uh, garbanzo beans, you know, just, yeah. I, I could be wrong. This may not be. Yeah. You, it was just third hand <laughs> knowledge, third, even though you I, got it straight from James. It was straight from James, but by a friend. So, you know, okay. it, it yeah. might, he not, might not be a farmer now, but, um, so I don't know, a school teacher yeah. maybe. Well, James, wherever you, uh, go, we hope we can see more of your great work. Yeah. And if uh, you have a guess as to what James is up to, send us a tweet. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, so in now back into the non-virtual world, Origins, the convention taking place in Columbus, Ohio, has set tentative dates for an actual in-person live convention mixed with uh, uh, online play as well. So they will stream uh, some of it. Some of it will be in person or so they think. Um, <laughs> yep. They are, they are opening hotel blocks on June 1st. And they're going to have badge registration uh, June 5th. 
I, I hope that it is possible by that point to safely do things. I certainly have my doubts that yeah. we will be in that position by that time. But hey, here's hoping. Yeah, the hardest part is, you know, they're going to have Hotel Block open on June 1st, badge restoration June 5th. It's hard to imagine that in June we're going to be in a position where we want to sign up for this, right? That we really feel yeah. the vaccine has worked its way through. And so I don't know. It seems hopeful, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. And boy, it would be wonderful if it did. Yep. Yep. So, you know, if you are someone who wants to sit at a table <laughs> in close proximity with several people playing a game uh, and you can safely, hey, good luck. We'll be with you in spirit. Yeah, sure. uh, and speaking of the D&D Adventures League, they have several new releases uh, for the Rhyme uh, of the Frost Maiden Adventures. 10-2 and 10-3 are now up on the DMs Guild. 10-2 is Gnashing Teeth by Laura Thompson. And 10-3 is Divining Evil by Tim Mattishaw. Yeah, really cool. Two amazing people, Laura mm -hmm. Thompson, Tim, GM Tim. I just fantastic. Love seeing their work. Um, I uh, was part of the playtesting for Divining Evil. Uh, there's some really great scenes in that adventure. So both are great to pick up. Yep. And on the Oracle of War side of the Adventurers League, you can get the final tier two adventure called Judgment of Iron by Richard Green, as well as the Tier 2 Epic, uh, where you can infiltrate a lightning rail train. So awesome. I know that Will and Tony uh, Portrius have been working on that, or have worked on that extensively, and it should be quite a ride. And if you <laughs> are into, yes, exactly, <laughs> if you are into Tier 3, you can now get some of the Tier 3 adventures. Uh EB11 is My Undying Heart by Tom Evhelm Donovan. And EB12 is called The Waiting Game by some hack who I can't believe they let, let actually write. Uh, by Sean Merwin. Woo! So you can check those out on the DMs Guild. Yeah, I mean, speaking I've, of the. I've talked about how much I love the Oracle of War campaign. It's great. This is a campaign that everybody should pick up. If all you do is read it because it'll inspire you, that's great times. Uh, but this is a lot of fun. I've been running these, and they're just fantastic. Yeah, Will uh, Will showed what you can do if you have a little bit of lead time and and an incredibly uh, gifted mind for storytelling. Uh, he really outdid himself with that. And uh, the best is then the best is yet to come. Speaking of the DMs Guild, you can now follow an author, and I did not know this, Teos. I did not yeah. know this. So so tell us about this. Yeah, so this is uh, something that people had asked for, creators had asked for for a long time, in that normally if you're like on drive-through, you know, and you buy a product from, let's say, you know, Cobalt Press, you can, when you buy it, say, I want to follow Cold Press, and then you get an email telling you whenever Cold Press creates a new thing. But on the DMs Guild, the author is DMs Guild. So mm -hmm. you can't follow Sean or Teos or Celeste or anyone else. You just have to, you know, watch Twitter or something to know when someone has published something. But now they've subdivided it um, if the author does this. And so authors, if you write for the DMs Guild, this is the thing you must do. You must go to your settings and enable your name to be displayed and followed. 
So there's a checkbox that goes out under the, under the settings. Uh, if anyone can't find it, send me a tweet. I'll look it up, the exact location. But you go through process, and you, you do that. And now, whenever anybody looks at your product, uh, when they're looking at the product page, over on the left side, they will see a follow your favorite section. That's always been there, but now the author name will be there and you can click a little checkbox and you can follow that author. So you can follow your favorite creators and then be notified when they create something new. Yeah. And I went through this after I saw these notes and it is not easy to find. You, know, you have to you have <laughs> yeah. to kind of search around for a minute. And uh, it it's not default your name is not there or at least my name was not there by default i had to actually go in and type out my first and last name yes uh because that was what was added to the the uh, screen that allows them now to do this so you'll definitely have to do it and if you're an adventures league author unfortunately uh since they upload the adventure mm -hmm. it's not going to be put in under your name uh it will be put in under uh adventures league uh-huh yeah and just the last bit of news since we were talking about celeste and before we get into rhyme of the frost maiden uh the venture maidens is now running through the adventure rhyme of the frost maiden and this is uh celeste conowich's group uh that that stream and since she helped write rhyme of the frost maiden it's very interesting to see how an author of a work or someone who contributed to a larger work runs their group through it yeah very cool i've, I've watched uh she's has three episodes up and the slot zero or session zero and um so it's neat to see how they build the characters and handle secrets and then they go into care koenig is where they choose as a starting part and they follow that if you if you i, mean, I don't want to do spoilers in this part but um they follow that logical type of monster that's involved in that quest mm -hmm. and they follow that storyline on through in later episodes so it, it's one of the things we'd said you know well you could go along this track and they, they certainly are, are doing that which is cool to see her do nice so that was a very long opening for news so we are going to get now right into our review of tasha's by looking at the last two subclasses for the druid the circle of stars and the circle of wildfire so circle of stars uh, the, this is interesting. I like this so much that the campaign that I'm playing in, my my druid just became second level, and this is the subclass I chose. So yeah. I will be able to tell you about it in gory detail if if we uh, if we advance in levels at all. So at level two, you, your first uh, thing you get is called the star map. So you get a tiny star map, and you can choose its form or roll for its form, and uh, as Teo said, no flumps were harmed during the uh, creation of the star map, although perhaps an owlbear was. Yeah, there is one that's the height of an owlbear. Yep, which is which is okay. Yep. Uh, so it, this map also doubles as your spellcasting focus. And while you're holding it, you know the Guidance Cantrip, and you know Guiding Bolt. And you can also cast Guiding Bolt without expending a spell slot. Uh, and uh, A number no, of times equal to proficiency mm -hmm. bonus. Yep. And then you regain all expended uses with a long rest. And, you know, this is something that I used right away when I was playing my oh, second yeah. level druid, because that's a, it's a great spell, but it's that spell that if you hit or, you know, if you miss, you're wasting that valuable at low level, that valuable slot. This lets you do it a few times 
without having to worry about using that spell slot. So it's great. And that's a and druid. If, it's so fun. Yeah. And if you lose your map, you have you can uh, perform a ritual for one hour to get it back. Any thoughts there? I mean, it's strong. It's really strong. Guiding bolts several extra times is that's mm -hmm. a big deal. That that's a nice, you know, instead of a cantrip, cast guiding bolt uh 2-3 times a day at your early levels. That's that's wow. It's yeah. no joke. Yeah. No. It's it's nice. Uh so, at level 2, you also get starry form. So, as a bonus action, you use one of your wild shapes uh, to gain your starry form. Uh, while you're in this form, you shed bright light within a 10-foot radius and dim light for an additional 10 feet. This form lasts for 10 minutes, and you can uh, end it early if you dismiss it as no action, if you're incapacitated, if you die, or if you use this feature again. And then you also, in the starry form, get to choose one of the following as constellations glimmer on your body. So these are three interesting choices. The first is called the archer. So th as a bonus action, uh, for 1d8 plus wisdom range spell attack up to 60 feet. So you get this ranged 60-foot spell attack. Uh, very nice. That's, yeah. a, that's a decent bonus action. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can take the form of the chalice. So when you uh, cast a spell that restores hit points to a creature, you or another creature within 30 feet of you also regains hit points equal to 1d8 plus your wisdom modifier. So it's kind of like an extra cure wounds. Uh, thrown yeah. thrown out there um and it's, it's no action it's no action to do that so the action is casting the original spell yeah. and then you get to do this as for free yeah. so yeah it's it's very nice and then the last form is the dragon uh when you make an intelligence or a wisdom check or a constitution saving throw to maintain concentration on a spell uh, you can treat a roll of nine or lower as a 10 on the d20 and that's important for druids because so many druid spells require concentration mm -hmm. that it's it's something that keeps druids from having to go through too many spell slots if you play a longer sort of uh, series of encounters. So I I am happy with that as well. I also love this is you know I I say this kind of anytime I get a chance to say so that my favorite design ever is the hunter ranger from the Essentials Four E. Mm -hmm. which gave you options that you could use based on your tactics and your the way you enjoy D&D. &D. Uh, mm -hmm. But they weren't crazy complicated. And this is a great right. example where these three are not overly complicated, but they are they have a little tactical edge to them. And the right. choice is tactical, but you're not bogging down play. Right. Love this. Just love yep. it. That you, I couldn't have said that any better. The choice is tactical, but the mechanics are simple. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I love that as well. Uh, so at level six, you get Cosmic Omen. Uh, whenever you finish a long rest, you can consult your star map for omens. Um, you can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and it refresh after a long rest. Um, so you roll a die, and you gain access to a special reaction based on that die roll, whether it's even or odd. If it's even, it's wheel. And whenever a creature you can see within 30 feet of you is about to make an attack roll, saving throw, or ability check, you can add a d6 to that uh, roll for them. Mm -hmm. If it's odd, it's woe, and it's the same thing except you're doing the opposite. You're taking a d6 away from an attack roll, saving throw, or ability check. What's important here is when you have to make that decision of when to give the d6. Yeah, right? it's before <laughs> they make the roll. 
Yep. Not when you see the result on the die or when the DM tells you what happened. It's before. It's when they're gonna do a check. Um, right. That makes it less powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't subtract after the fact or, or add after the fact. Um, and it's a limited number of uses a day. It's a proficiency bonus, but that's still neat. So it's a nice bonus. It's not a game breaker, which I like. Yep. And then when you get to level 10, you get Twinkling Constellations. The constellations of your starry form improve. Uh, the D8 from the Archer and the Chalice becomes 2D8. And while you're in the, the Dragon Constellation, when that's active, you have a fly speed of 20 feet and you can hover. And I love this. I love um, taking something that's already there, not overcomplicating it anymore, just giving it a little bit more yeah. oomph. Um, at the start of each of your turns while you're in starry form, you can change the constellation that's glimmering on your body. So it's it's less flexible at, at lower levels. When you choose it, that's the only thing you can do. Here, you can change it every round. So yeah, now cool. it's a, yep, now it's at level 10, you've got that more more control and you can bring up the constellation that's most appropriate for you at the time. Mm-hmm. And at level 14, you get full of stars while you're in your starry form, you become partially incorporeal, giving you resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, piercing and slashing damage. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's yeah. simple. I like that part of it. Uh, it's a little weird because this feels like a ranged class. Um, I mean, you know, it's fine. People are still going to chase you down and, and beat you up, but it's oh, yeah. it's not a particularly strong feature due to the fact that you're going to be avoiding combat. You're a ranged character, but it's yeah. fine. Yep. And uh, it's simple. And one thing I thought was, you know, this shows how much magic items can unbalance a game, right? Because I'm sure there are magic items out there that people can find that do this, that give you resistance to mm. damage and you know i i just it was just a random passing thought as i was reading that you know these features become less important the more magic items you have in your game true and for me it's just one more reason to limit magic items yeah. to make these things more cool rather than oh i have this armor that uh, always does this so well, and- you know and that's, I always think back, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but Mike Merles talked about during fourth edition, how they almost did away with magic items or made them vastly different than ever before. And, you know, 4E got dinged for being different, but I wish they had experimented with that so that we just mm-hmm. would have been able to see for several years what it would be like to have a completely different model for magic items. And right. I say that because I think that if magic items were less of this always on, which came into our brains, this, you know, it's a plus one sword, it's always plus one. And right. was more about a give a take or a choice or every now and then, I think that would be better because when I look at campaigns I run and I think what were the memorable magic items, it's never that stuff. And it's always things like an alchemy jug or mm-hmm. rope of climbing or entanglement. You know, it's, right. it's using things in fun moments, uh, a um the robe that of useful items right it's it's crazy things like that that are fun and and make it interesting not having a resistance always through some armor badge Mm -hmm. or something yep yeah so overall i like i said i love this so much that i bought it (laughs) it might be my next uh subclass too i liked it a lot too yeah it's great so i will see how it plays as as levels rise uh the other subclass is the circle of wildfire this one is about destruction being a precursor to creation 
uh, such as wildfires causing growth in the long run. So the Druid bonds with a primal spirit that harbors both creative and destructive powers. And my immediate uh, thought was the, was it the shaman? What, what was the class where you got? The, oh, yeah. All the spirits and the spirits. And yeah. Yeah. For a, yep. Super complicated, but I really. Yes. It. Yes. So we'll see if that follows through when I read that uh, at level two, you get circle spells. These spells all have the theme of fire or healing. I felt uh, like this actually was a subclass that could have been in a um, one of the Magic the Gathering setting books like Ravnica or, or Theros, because it feels like a red white magic deck attack right. heal right it just it right. really felt the spells are all like either healing or fire healing or fire yep and so at level two speaking of healing or fire you get to summon a wildfire spirit so it's an action to summit the spirit to a place you can see within 30 feet uh, each creature within 10 feet of the spirit when it appears other than you uh, must succeed on a dexterity saving throw against your spell dc or take 2d6 fire damage so that's not that's pretty beefy right there yeah. because you could basically place a little mini fireball anywhere you want on the map mm-hmm. when it comes in. Uh, the stat block, the, so there's a stat block for this spirit. It uses uh, your proficiency bonus and you determine the appearance. And I like that they have that stat block in there. Yeah, uh, It's the same for everybody. It's the same for everything. Everything you need is right there. Plop it down and go. Uh the spirit yeah. takes the dodge. Oh, I wonder ahead. whether Dan Dylan made these changes uh, because it's it's kind of conversations that he's had and 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 others have had around how we wish that early five E had done this. The core five E had sort of had this approach of just give us a stat block and evolve that stat block and let us change the appearance. And this this I just I love that. It can be whatever fire creature I want, but I've got rules to unite it. So I'm not looking up a fire bear or a fire, you know, whatever creature, spider, whatever. It's just one stat block and it evolves. It's great. Yep. Uh, The spirit has an AC of 15, hit points equal to five plus five times your druid level, speed of 30, uh, fly speed of 30, dark vision 60 feet. It has a flame seed action that is a 60 foot ranged attack uh, that uses your spell attack and deals 1d6. Uh, plus uh, proficiency bonus. Thank you. Proficiency bonus fire damage. Uh, It also has fiery teleportation as an action. Uh, The spirit and each willing creature of your choice within five feet of it teleport up to 15 feet to unoccupied spaces you can see. Then each creature within the five-foot space that the spirit left must succeed on a dexterity saving throw or take 1d6 plus proficiency bonus fire damage. Uh, Again, I'm not so keen on the teleportation part of things, especially at second level. But, yeah, it's it's a, an interesting tactical choice. It, it, it does bog things down a bit. It's also interesting that usually it's like you must move everybody together. But it, the way it says this, each creature can sort of choose where they are teleporting to. Yeah. Um, so you just sort of redistribute within 15. Uh, and then you kind of firebomb the area left. Um, but it's there's a lot of damage you can dish out through this thing. It, it is vulnerable with its AC thirteen, and you know its hit mm-hmm. points aren't. But its hit points aren't consequential. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I'd I'd love to see this in play. I'm not a huge fan, as I've said, of summoning things because mm-hmm. I feel like it's stronger than it should be just by virtue of putting another thing on the table. Sure. But um, but I I do like the way this works. It's super fun. Like you just want to play with this thing. Yep. Uh, so at level six, you get enhanced to bond. 
So when you cast a spell that deals fire damage or stirs hit points while your wildfire spirit is summoned, you roll a D8 and you gain a bonus equal to that number to one damage or one healing roll of the spell. Uh, so again, we're treading here now on a few too many clauses, a few too many things. So it's, it's while your creature is that bonded um, and then you can do it. You get a bonus to uh, the, the damage on a spell, a fire spell or the restoration of hit points. Um, and this is where I, I begin to think, okay, they're, they're taking that old 4E thing and they're trying to, to make, they're trying to 5E it, right? Yeah. Because back then it was, if your summoned ally, your companion, whatever they call it, uh, your spirit was next to a creature, you could do more damage to it or heal it for more or something like that. Uh, I, I get it. It's, it's not over the line, but for uh, for me, it's creeping up to that line of one too many things. I also feel like we're maybe trying to damage like the most damaging classes because, you know, this is not a consequential. I use a fire cantrip, which probably does 2d8 at this you know, level six. Mm -hmm. um, then I do a bonus d8 because of this feature. And then my spirit is attacking for 1d6 plus three. I mean, that's kind of like ranger level damage, you know, like this is mm -hmm. not inconsequential damage. It's pretty close to what your good, strong damage dealers are dealing. And this is just your every round stuff. Right. Um, and then you can, you know, actually do not just a fire canter, but you could do a bigger fire spell or, mm -hmm. you know, something else that's, that's a strong spell, an area attack or whatever. So yeah, it's kind of impressive to see a couple of these subclasses that consistently dish out much stronger damage than normal. And mm -hmm. it does worry me because what I see is people that play when I, when I play these kinds of games, like say with an artificer, right? And it, the cannon attacks and then the character attacks. And that damage together is stronger than the rogue. And the rogue's kind of like, what did I do wrong? I'm supposed to be the damage dealing class, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it does hint a little bit at that sort of power creep. Yeah. In addition, when you cast a spell with a range other than the self, uh, the spell can originate from you or from your wildfire spirit. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So at level 10, cauterizing flames. So here we go. <laughs> here we go. When a smaller, larger creature dies within 30 feet of you or your wildfire spirit, a harmless spectral flame springs forth in the dead creature space and flickers there for one minute. When a creature you can see enters that space, you can use your reaction to extinguish the spectral flame and either heal the creature or deal fire damage to it. That healing or damage is equal to 2d10 plus your wisdom modifier. Uh, I, it's cool. It, wait, wait, let's add the other part. You can use oh, this reaction. Yeah, a number, a number of, of times, times equal, equal to, to your proficiency <laughs> bonus. Go ahead. And then, and then you then get you it gained. all back with the long rest. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I love the flavor of it. I think it's fun. I think it's thematic. But now you've got your spirit that you're keeping track of. Now you've got yourself that you're keeping track of. And now there's this flame uh, that you have to keep track of. And Again, if you're running a super tactical campaign and you are a super organized player, not a problem at all. Uh, if if you get into situations where, well, there's the flame there. Well, try to push the enemy into it. No, I need the healing. Let me run into it. 
uh, you know, you, you start getting into these tactical discussions that can really slow a game down. My reason for absolutely horribly disliking this, <laughs> I'll just be honest, yeah. uh, I really dislike this because it's sort of unworkable. If I'm playing theater of the mind or I'm kind of loose, you know, using zones or whatever, like then I don't know where these spaces are. And now mm -hmm. it becomes completely up to the DM to decide whether a creature has walked through a space with a dead body in it or not. Unless mm -hmm. your allies, it's a little easier, but for, for the damage part, it's very difficult to, to, to go through the body. And, you know, and then you're, as a DM, you're in this weird position of having to reward the player or not. It's really weird. And, and yeah. I think in general, logically, creatures would not walk in a space with a body in it, even though we know that they fit in the five feet. They'll probably just go around because you can. The way movement works, you can just avoid those spaces. Why go through a body space? You, mm -hmm. you just would avoid it. Um, the other thing is that if you're playing with battle map, where theoretically it's easy to track this, you must now track this for every single body that dies ever, even though this is only going to be used proficiency bonus of times as a reaction, which may mean not at all in a combat, right? But every time a creature dies, I got to put a thing down. And what is my thing? Because if my thing is a turned over mini, no one's walking in that square. Mm -hmm. They're going right. to go around the down mini. So you'd have right. to have like a little like flat token that you put down on each dead body to remember. Like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. I, I dislike right. that all very strongly. Right. Just, it, it, it yeah. It could work. just as easily have said as a reaction when a creature dies within 30 feet of you. Yes. Do do take the 2d10 yeah. healing. Take the 2d10 damage. Have it happen right away and and be done with it. Uh, that yeah, it's the entering the space was completely unnecessary design to have here. Yeah. And and if you want to run this, you know, if a player is choosing this as a DM, I would say, or as a player have this conversation, just get rid of that enters the space because nobody yeah. wants to track this. Nobody wants the gotcha of it. Just give the effect. You know. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I know players that would love that. Right, they're gonna love the because they're very tactical. They're very on the map, and they want to have these pitfalls or these honey pots on the map that <laughs> that that you know bring them that they want to get to or that they want to get away from. And it's part of the chess match of play for them. So I, I get why some people would like that, and it's fine well, if you do. I think overall, it yeah. might not be the best for all uh, right. D and D players. And there are, there have been classes that set traps that are invisible to people that can then be triggered um, or that are obvious. And, and, but I think you have to design for that. And in this case, the design, uh, it, it's, you're not putting down a trap. It's that when a creature dies, you may or may not do this. Mm -hmm. And for proficiency bonus times, this is not worth the work, right? Right. Right. It would be different if you were setting down a deliberate healing spot or a deliberate attack spot, and that was what you did. But you're not doing it. It's a thing that just happens every single time someone dies, and that's just too much to track. Mm. Yep. So at 14th level, there is Blazing Revival. If, if the spirit is within 120 feet of you when you are reduced to zero hit points and thereby fall unconscious, you can cause the spirit to drop to zero hit points, and then you regain half your hit points and immediately rise to your feet. Once you use this feature, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest. Cool. I'm all yep. down with that. That totally. is 
thematically it makes sense the spirit heals you um you get right back up the spirit goes away easy to to keep track of easy to uh adjudicate at the table yeah i think the only question here is what happens if both you and the spirit are brought to zero hit points at the same time at the same time mm. i would probably still allow it yeah but yeah. i mean per the wording it maybe is not shouldn't work uh but right. the spirit is weak enough in terms of it hit points that if you are dying it might also be dying and it doesn't quite address that situation yeah and that's that's also another summon creature mm -hmm. problem right with with so many creatures on the board at once and so many taking damage yeah it's a it's a thing yeah. so we have gotten through druids and next time we will move on to the next uh subclasses what comes after druid is it fighter Yes. D-E-F. Yes, fighter. Excellent. But we need to talk about the three forms of Aureal. Woo! And finish uh, spoiler up. Spoiler time. Once and for all, Chapter 5. So, yes, if you are a player and you do not want to be spoiled on Rhyme of the Frostbaden, uh, thank you for listening. For those of you in for the long haul, we're going to just discuss very briefly uh, the end of Chapter 5, when you have to fight Aureal's three forms. Um, some some things to be aware of uh, as as the DM. So, Teos, take it away. All right. So the first thing to understand is that Aureal cannot truly be killed. She is a goddess. So even though she has given up a lot of divinity to be doing her whole plan, she cannot be killed permanently. But they can defeat her by temporarily, or defeat her temporarily by defeating her and each time you do so, she changes another form and she does this three times. So in succession, you must defeat a monstrous creature form that looks like sort of an owlbear, an elemental creature in humanoid form, and then a small elemental form that looks like an ice diamond. Mm -hmm. Defeat those three forms and she is gone for uh, a year, I think it is, somewhere else. Until, until the next solstice. Yeah, next winter solstice. Yeah. Um, it's also important to note that if you kill one of her forms but don't finish the job, uh, the next day she gets one of her forms back and then the following day another. Uh, so unless you complete the, the kill, if you will, uh, you're going to end up having to fight all three forms again. So this is something that you want to do, uh, that the players are going to want to do all in one day. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that this is a monster. I, I, I love this. I actually really like this kind of design uh, because it puts a lot of power in the DM if the mm -hmm. DM wants to use it. Yes. Um, the tactics that Oral has are the kind that I think really cool creatures should have. Like dragons should be able to fly away and strafe you. That's what makes them super dangerous is that they can always just lift off into the air. And unless you're really high level, they can just kill you from afar. Mm -hmm. uh, come back and breathe every time until you're dead. In this same way, Oral truly could just escape. She can teleport away. You will not mm -hmm. be able to find her, and she'll come back the next day, and this can go on forever. Um, if she is smart, she's kind of unkillable, and it's up to you, the DM, to choose how to play it. There is some guidance. She is, as usual, kind of overconfident at first. Um, mm -hmm. And they, there's also, it says that she, um, it's okay if, if they can't defeat her she will actually allow them to leave with their lives so that she and she will tell them that she wants um, them to go and tell 
the ten towns, how dangerous she is, and that you know they will be defeated. Anyone who comes against her will be defeated. So the players can retreat, mm -hmm. and that works because they do not actually, for the story to work and for for progress to be achieved, they don't have to actually have to kill Oral. What they have to kill is Oral's rock, which is what she rides every day. Now, we talked mm -hmm. about it last time that this is a little dissatisfying. <laughs> it's yeah. also not something that you hear about. Um, so the players may not understand this. And, and I think a big key to, to having this Oral fight work well is that they must, through this fight, learn what they need to know to make their mm -hmm. decisions, right? It can be a really cool tactical fight that plays out as a super huge challenge. They beat Oral, later they beat a rock. It's very obvious that the rhyme has ended, but they also could get spanked. Mm -hmm. And if they know that it's okay to have been spanked, it won't necessarily be a, a letdown. It can be that kind of, I hate this villain. Um, and, but they know that they did whatever you decide is required to end the rhyme. And that mm -hmm. can be defeating the rock. Um, I would personally say that it's stealing the the book, the codicil of yep. white that's in the basement. I would say that that is part of her ritual. Um, I think it can work with the rock, but you just need to somehow explain that it's maybe it's a magical rock infused with energies or something. And and to be mm -hmm. clear, rock we mean the flying creature, not a right. R O C, not R O C K. R O C. So yep. I, that must be established up front, I think, for all of this scene to work. Mm -hmm. Anything else yeah. you'd add to that, Sean? Yeah, well, it's just it what it comes down to, as Teo said it right at the start, is you as the DM have some choices to make. And you can make them to um, frustrate slash delight your players, depending on what sort of story uh, you, you, you're telling and what their threshold for having to go out of their way maybe take a few sessions to deal with this rather than doing it all at once. Because as Teo said, as part of her lair actions, her, her, this whole island is basically her lair. So she knows the location and health of all creatures on the island. She can teleport to any location on the island. Uh, and she can communicate telepathically with any number of creatures on the island. So what, what you could do is, if your players are interested in this kind of story, they could fight her first form and defeat it. And she could teleport away. And maybe uh, they think they're done. So they leave the island. And what I would do, to be honest, is for maybe a 10 day, the sun comes back. And everyone's happy and everyone is rejoicing. But on the 11th day, the sun doesn't come back. And the 12th and 13th days. And you realize something's wrong. Okay, let's go back to the island or maybe do some research and learn that, oh, she has three forms. So they go back and they have to then fight her. So make it sort of a puzzle that the players have to um, figure. And again, some players are going to hate that and not, not why. So if your players are like that, then just don't do that. Let, let them handle it all at once. But if they're more in for the long-term story, that could be a uh, thing of interest that, oh, we they learn that she has three forms. Okay, now we're going to have to track her down. But she can teleport, so she could just teleport away. We need to find a way to find her when she teleports so we can find her on the island and deal with the second form. Uh, the, yeah, go ahead. I was just say another consideration here is story-wise, 
how does it feel for you and the players to defeat Oral now versus towards the end of the story? Because if True. she survives now, she can still be that named villain that we've thought about as being the end villain, but well, here we learn in chapter five, she's not. Uh, well, she can be. And so maybe story-wise, the best payoff is they have what they think is an epic showdown and they defeat one or two or forms before they realize, oh man, we don't know how long this goes. Uh, maybe they uncovered it's three, maybe they don't know, but that, you know, it changes to another form and they're all out of hit points and, and, and she invites them to run away and they do. And then maybe they come back and sneak in and they steal her book and mm -hmm. stop the rhyme, but they know she's going to come for them. And again, there's this horror theme in this adventure that can be there. And leaning into that now could actually be one of the most satisfying parts of this adventure is how you fought her, stole away with the things she needed for the rhyme. And then, you know, she's coming to get you at some point. Yeah. And there will yep. be that face off at the end. And you love to have a villain that you couldn't defeat and, and hate them. Like that's a thing that can be hard to do. This book mm -hmm. gives you those ingredients if you want to cook that meal up. Mm hmm. And on the other side of the spectrum, um, the the three forms themselves, they say that they are CR, was it 10, nine, 10, nine, 10 and then 11. Mm -hmm. um, so that's three very, very difficult fights for, for seventh level characters by the rules. Uh, but while she can do a lot of damage, her first form only has 95 hit points. For seventh level characters, especially ones that have not had a lot of combat to start with, if they find her directly, that's one round. Yeah, uh, she's 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 done. So uh, she can't be surprised as as a uh, more immortal being. Uh, so at least you don't have to worry about surprise rounds. But if you know if an issue goes wrong, she could be dead as with an AC of thirteen and ninety five hit points. Um, easily dead in one round if you get power attacking uh and what's the what's the shooty feat that you get to subtract yeah, five uh, you know right you know what i mean yes plus 10 uh, damage minus five yeah, attack yep yeah so right, right there you know you get some of those characters yeah. uh they'll make short work of that first form uh mm -hmm. quite easily yeah so let's talk about her mechanically um as you mentioned she cannot be surprised um, her statistics are all in Appendix C in this huge set of stat blocks. She has three layer actions, knows the location and health of any creature on the island, plus any conditions, for example, whether something's vulnerable to cold. Mm -hmm. That's really tactically important. So if yep. she, you know, earlier on you cursed some of the characters uh, for destroying statues in the garden and they have vulnerability to cold, she knows which ones. Um, yep. So keep that in mind. She can teleport to any location. She also knows their health, so she knows when a character is almost dead. Right. Um, yep. She can teleport to any location as a layer action. Uh, the book suggests that you can make her tougher because she can teleport to the rooftop and have the rock attack. The rock is CR 11. Mm -hmm. It is just a straight up beast with 248 hit points and it deals basically 50 damage around with two very accurate attacks. So yep. that's not a bad beef to bust into the show. Of course, it is the <laughs> thing that per the book allows her rhyme to function. And right. she can telepathically communicate so she can taunt people at will. <laughs> always yeah. nice to have. That, that's always fun. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, and I, you know, if you like the horror type elements, lean into that, you know, where are you now? You know, like, mm -hmm. you know, learn one of the characters' names and use it. Oh, great. Yeah. 
Yep. So her having having that voice in your head is uh, oh yeah is always yeah. nasty. First form is the cold crone. She is like a biped with the head of a snow owl, looks sort of owlberry type uh, appearance. CR nine, as you mentioned, only ninety five hit points and an AC of thirteen. So she does not want to be right up with some super beefy tank. Uh, she can fly sixty feet, however. Mm-hmm. Also worth noting, she's vulnerable to radiant, but she has true sight, and all of her forms have true sight and a really high passive perception. Perception, mm-hmm. so she will almost always see someone who's hiding. Uh, she will see through all magical illusions, deceptions, etc. She has two legendary resistances to automatically make saves and magic resistance in this form. She can at will Misty Step, which lets her kind of spring attack type attack, and she can do Chromatic Orb Cold for 13 damage. Mm -hmm. Twice per day, she can do Ice Storm. So what does this all mean? Oh, and she also has her legendary attacks uh, and talent attacks. Her legendary action is to do a talent attack for 10 damage. She can teleport 30, or she can spend two legendary actions and do her Touch of Frost attack, which does 13 cold and no reactions. That's Mm -hmm. not particularly impressive, but if you play it tactically, you can get a lot out of this form before they churn through the hit points. And the way I like to look at this is they are meant to defeat her. That's why she has an easy AC and low hit points, but she's softening them up here. And depending Mm -hmm. on how good your party is, you can just let them do it fairly easily or you can be very tactical and to be very tactical the key here is fly drop Mm -hmm. ice storm so that's continuously causing trouble in a small room on people you are flying up above so those melee people can't get to you easily you can misty step to get away from any problems Um, and you can always teleport so you actually don't have to die in this form you can teleport away and then come back in the next time they're in a battle because she will know when something's hit points drop whether it's a character or a creature and she can mm-hmm. show up again and continue the fight chromatic orb is super accurate so if you have those high ac pain in the butt characters um you know you have some good chances against them uh so i think you can do a lot of damage especially with those two ice storms in this form as and if someone's vulnerable all of these forms are really brutal mm-hmm. Yeah, her second form is called the Brittle Maiden. It's a 10-foot-tall woman made of ice and frost uh, with uh, weapons created out of ice. So now the hit points in the armor class go up a bit, AC 16 and 136 hit points, and no flying but vulnerability to fire, uh, sort of the same legendary resistances and and magic resistances. Uh, The multi-attack is twice at plus 7 to hit for 16 damage or hurl darts three times with a plus seven to hit for an average of eight points of damage and cone of cold. Yay. (laughs) 36 Uh, damage is delicious. If you are vulnerable. Yes, that that's a lot. And she can create an ice method three times a day. So don't be afraid to do that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And there are also some ice methods around, including one, which may be traveling with the party. Keep that one in mind. (laughs) You can sacrifice the guide. Uh, she has this ice stasis, which is a recharge five plus six that has a DC 21 charisma save, or they are mm-hmm. trapped in a crystal. They are stunned while there. They take 21 cold at the start of each turn. You do get to continuously save to get out. Or if the creature takes nine hit points from fire or the crystal takes nine hit points from fire, then it ends it. So it's, e- it's relatively easy to get out, but it's a great way to end concentration or you know just get away from some situation that you need to do really nice way um Mm -hmm. she has three legendary attacks you can do her legendary actions you can do a weapon attack 
Spend two to do an ice flurry to deal five damage to all within 30 feet and extinguish all flames. Or all three actions can cause splinter, which causes an ice method to explode and everybody within 10 takes 13 damage or a half, depending on whether they make a DC 21 save. Um, so you're, you know, that is a, a great option, especially if people are vulnerable. These exploding ice methods can really cash in. You can't do it twice, two rounds in a row, but it still can be very nice to deal a bunch of damage. Tactically, what I like about this brittle maiden form is that you can, one thing to keep in mind is when you go from form to form, she can reappear anywhere within 60 feet she chooses. So you can actually be in another room. Mm-hmm. Um, or to position yourself such that you start with that cone of cold and get everybody in it. Right? right. Make that cone of cold because 36 damage is no joke when it happens twice, especially if you already ice stormed them twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, or actually, she does one cone of cold, but one cone yeah. of cold, two uh, ice storms yeah. is, is significant. And if there are yeah. any vulnerabilities, very significant. Um, also, starting your your form, you could start outside of combat in another room, go get some ice methods, and then come in. Mm-hmm. Oh, we beat Oral. Wow, that was not that hard. Oh, look, exploding ice methods, cone of cold. You know, mm-hmm. again, that hits a lot. Ice stasis is just really cool, so I feel like you have to use it. And it's tactically great if you want to break concentration or put some problematic PC on hold after they, you know, they power themselves up some way and you just go, yeah, no, mm-hmm. putting you on ice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's pretty fun. I like I like this form a bit, a good bit. Yep. And then the third form is called Winter's Womb or the Queen of Frozen Tears. It's a three foot diameter ice diamond containing Aurel's divine spark. This CR eleven creature has an AC of nineteen and one hundred and thirty six hit points, a fly speed of thirty, and it's vulnerable to thunder. So each one has been vulnerable. The first was radiant, even though we didn't mention that. The second was fire. The third is thunder. Uh, has blind sight and true sight and a passive perception of 26 as before legendary uh, resistance once per day and magic resistance as well so with the aura of this anyone within 10 feet takes 10 cold at the start of her turns this is this yeah. is significant juicy right? i love auras yeah <laughs> yep. so so this is now turning into something that could be be, be very deadly um, <laughs> especially if you are playing with uh, players that don't really optimize. Uh, so at this point, if if they're not just mowing her forms down, you may want to think of a good exit strategy of <laughs> of, of allowing them to allowing the players or their characters a way out. Whether Sean, it's, yeah. what would how would you do that? How, so let's say I'm you know I, I'm round two in my third form, and you see uh, my character's about to die, and the other character's already down. What would you how do you handle? Do you just tell them, "Hey, you're over your head"? Do you have them make checks? What do you like? It's it's hard to do that. Uh, it's hard to. Well, the first thing you have to do is get a feel for the players, because so, what what what's perfect for one player is just going to infuriate another player. Um, so you want to get a feel for what your players would want. I would have something happen where she. T- stopped for a round s- showed physical pain something's happening um, give them the chance to take stock heal someone who's you know dying mm-hmm. uh, and then use that delay as 
a clue that something's wrong and they can't maybe can't use it now, but use it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't know what that would be. I mean, one thing um, is she can just simply say, you're defeated. Right. And she could van- and, you know, tell all of the 10 towns that I yeah. have spared you, but could have easily claimed you and none should come challenge me in my domain and just teleport right. away. You know, she could yeah. actually just do that, right? And leave them there stunned like, oh man, we were getting spanked by her. I don't know. Right. Yeah. You, you could also do sort of a curse. Um, mm, I like that. Where, yeah, where she does exactly that. And then, and she's like, all right, you, you are now under my authority. Go, <laughs> go speak the word about real. And, you know, if they don't, you know, they lose a hit point per day yeah. or something. Yeah. If they don't say, say praise or real in front of a, you know, in front of at least 10 people <laughs> once yeah. a day. And yeah, they don't, they don't have to love her, right? They don't have to actually become thralls of her, but no. it's something that she's divine, right? She's immortal. Yeah, she, like that. she, and, and that gives them an impetus then to go back and defeat her later. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. So, so yeah, so, so keep in mind some exit strategy. I think that's a really good thing to do. Let's quickly go into the tactics. This is the form in which you do want to close. Uh, it's the opposite of the first form where you want to fly above and drop some ice storms. Here, you get Blizzard Veil, a magical obscuring blizzard, 30 feet, which is centered on herself, does require concentration. Um, and this is a lot like magical darkness. We talked about darkness two episodes ago. It's mm-hmm. great if the party has things like really powerful sneak attack if they can actually somehow hide from her passive procession 26, or if they have ways to get advantage consistently, now they can't get those things. Mm-hmm. And that gives her a more even ground. Um, mm-hmm. Plus she has true sight and blind sight, so she's not affected. She can see you through this. Right. Um, the other thing is this combines with her aura. So it's a beautiful cinematic thing where she is dealing 10 cold to everybody within 10 feet and they can't see within this blizzard. It's really cinematic. Um, She can spend two legendary action to intensify the aura, to increase the damage from 10 to 20 at the start of Mm -hmm. everyone's turns. Oh man, I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, She also can do two actions for blinding gleam. Everybody within 10 feet who sees her have to make a DC 17 wisdom save or be blind for one minute, repeat save at the end of your turns. So that's awesome. Off turn, which is how legendary actions are used, if the blizzard is dropped. So someone breaks her concentration, the blizzard's gone, the aura is still up, but the blizzard's gone. Hey, she can just spend this to blind at least most of the people or a good number of the people in the party so that mm-hmm. she's back to that situation. And then later she can bring the uh, the veil back up. Um, yeah. And the uh, and the veil is an action to set up. So she can, she can it's not rechargeable. She can just do it again and again. Yeah. Um, so here, what you want to do is you want to start close to them. She can, of course, gather allies if she wants, um, choose a better time to fight. But whenever she goes into it, she gets close to the PCs. The Blizzard's Veil is giving her defensive capabilities. Um, blinding Gleam if the Blizzard drops. And make sure that Aura hits as many as PCs as possible. Pump it up with Intensify Aura. Her Polar Ray, which is her, her default uh, range spell attack, is plus 13 to hit, so it's very accurate and it deals 14 cold, and she can do it twice. That is not bad, you know, mm-hmm. for a use of her actions when she can, when she's not re-upping that um, right. aura. So this is pretty strong. Again, if you have vulnerability, very strong. 
If you have a super powerful party, make sure they got that vulnerability by a curse because that's going to be an equalizer. And she can teleport at any time when she's not liking things. So yeah. very hard to defeat all three of these forms if you want that to be the way that it's set up. Yeah. And the last thought I had on this was, you know, in, in this day and age, a lot of us are playing in smaller chunks because we're playing online and we might not have as much time as we normally do. Mm -hmm. So if your default session is only an hour or only two hours, you may need that full time to run this combat with all three forms. So don't, uh, if you don't like stopping in the middle of a combat, keep that in mind uh, because this could go on for a while, especially if you use the teleporting yeah. and sort of staying out of their way. And this is a combat, we've said this in a number of ways, but it's worth saying it again. Really think about what your party has enjoyed about this adventure, what kind of elements and style they've enjoyed, how they're feeling about this, because defeating her first form and then just hearing her laughter echo throughout the place mm -hmm. and you don't know where she is and she communicates with you telepathically here and there. Did you kill me? You know, like, <laughs> man, that could really be cool. Yeah. And then you face her second form, but she teleports again and then comes back and hits you. It could be like an alien movie, right? Like, and yeah. so there's a lot of ways, depending on what your players are liking and reacting to that you can give them a really neat feel with this and they do not need to defeat her. She could be the villain that's going to be at the end. So it's up to you how to play it. Yep. But don't take our word for it. No. Uh, there, are, there are actually two articles out there that specifically talk about uh, guidance on running or real, I believe. Yeah, uh, James, one is by, yeah, James the Hake aforementioned before, James Hake. Yeah. Before he started his farming career. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote <laughs> about it on D&D Beyond. Uh, so there's a link in our show notes, or you can just go to go to D&D Beyond and look for the How to Play Oriel the Frostmaiden Like a Goddess uh, article. And our friend PowerScore RPG also wrote about it uh, on the blog. It's the campaign20xx.blogspot.com. Uh, PowerScore talks about gu a guide to running or real. So you yeah, have and, some options out there. And PowerScore's uh, guide is, is heavy on the history and appearances. So if you really want to think about what's her mentality, uh, that's where to go. It's less about tactics in the battle. Uh, but mm -hmm. really about understanding all about her, her history, the different books, what's her mindset, her relationships to other gods, why she's here. So it's really neat background premise stuff. Excellent. So that is it for chapter five. Next, we will talk about chapter six, the caves of hunger, but that is for another week. So thank you, Mr. Abadia, for your expertise on all of that. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. And thank you, listeners for putting up with us for yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. And thank you to our patrons as well. If you would like to be a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find you on social media? I am on Twitter at AlphaStream, and you can find my blog at alphastream.org. The latest post is on how to set up your audio and video. Ooh, I could probably use that. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. And you can also follow the podcast Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, what do you think we should do now? Uh, we should retreat. Oral is a badass. Yeah, we're not killing that monster anytime soon. <laughs>